You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to say Merry Christmas to you all. What a gift it is for us to be able to gather and worship together on Christmas Eve. I want to let you guys know, uh, we don't have a formal kids ministry happening today, but if you do have kids in the room and you want to get access to that space, we do have a listening space set up there with a very kind of rudimentary live stream going on. And so if you want to follow along, you can do that in that space. Uh, We love kids here. Uh, My kids are sometimes the loudest here, so um, don't feel embarrassed if your kids are making noise. They are welcome here. But if they're getting antsy and you feel like you want to go to a different space, you can just head back to there. And there is a place where you can listen. Also, we have some tables in the back with some coloring sheets and sermon notes pages, and so feel free to make access to those. Uh, Our text today is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like one, we have some hardback black Bibles back there that you can use. And if you use one of those, we're on page 952. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 25. And our text today, you might think, is a little bit more like an Easter text And in some ways it is because it talks about the cross of Christ, but it also, as a passage, has helped to provide the theme and the language for our series together for Advent, which we've called Foolishness to the World. And our hope is that throughout this Advent, the coming of Jesus has confronted us of our efficiency-driven and significance-seeking world. We would not have planned things the way that God has done them. God's wisdom is often seen as foolishness to us from a human perspective. And today's text is going to help us to see that what we demand from God so often and what we decide our priorities may not be His priorities. And if we let God confront us today, it also might just surprise us and bring us the comfort that our hearts are longing for. And now if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again, verses 22 through 25. The words will appear on the screen beside me. I can read and you can follow along. It says this, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Go grab a seat. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us each week as we gather here this morning, as we gather on Christmas Eve morning. We thank you that we can open it, and in it you tell us about who you are and what your plans are for the world and what that means for us who live within it. But we need your help, and so would you, by your Spirit, open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our kids have really gotten into chess throughout the fall, which some of you know because you've been recipients of their invitation to play a game with them. And it's In some ways, it's helped me to kind of see chess in a new way. It is, on the one hand, a remarkably simple game. Anyone can learn to play. And like so many things in life, if you work at it, you can get better and become proficient at playing chess. 
I've also realized, though, that there are layers of depth and complexity to chess that you can learn if you want to get better. I used to think it was just sort of a gift of some people, this kind of mysterious ability to play chess, but actually you can learn to get better if you study the depths and the complexity of it. They, my kids, have this chess class at their co-op, and as they got better and better throughout the fall, I realized that they were getting better. See, I thought I knew chess fairly well. I could confidently beat my kids whenever I wanted to, and I did, because I'm the kind of dad I am when it comes to games. I'm ruthless. But now Liam beats me as often as I beat him, or sometimes more. And I realized my kids were quickly getting better, so I started to read the Complete Idiot's Guide to Chess, helping me to keep pace with them. I don't think I'll ever be better than Liam again, though. And so what I realized is I knew how to play chess. But when I dug deeper, I came to see there's so much depth and complexity and beauty to the game. And I believe that is also true for Christmas for most of us. We become so familiar with the story of Christmas that we often fail to see its beauty, its depth, its complexity. And I'll just ask, how many of you were part of a Christmas pageant at some point growing up or have been to a Christmas pageant? Most people in the room, I've been in my fair share of them as well. And for many of us, the story of Christmas that we have in our minds is shaped more by the pageants that we've seen and the nativity sets that we display each year than it is by the story that's captured in the Bible. And here's just one example for you. How many of the pageants and nativities that you've seen have three wise men gathered at the manger along with Mary and Joseph and the others? Probably most of us. And what if I told you that they weren't actually at the manger when Jesus was born, but that they came about two years after Jesus was born? In Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to these wise men, and you can turn there if you want. You can even see within the text. They come from the east, and in verse 7, Herod asks them, when the star appeared that led them to look for the king of the Jews. He's asking these wise men, when was Jesus born? And then based on that information, in verse 16, Herod then massacres all the male children in the region, in Bethlehem, who were two years old or younger. And yes, that also happens within the story. We don't include that in the pageants for good reason, right? We include the wise men. We want them there. We don't want Herod's actions in the pageant. But here's what we conclude from Herod's decision. By the time the wise men arrived, Jesus was at least one, maybe two years old. Now, I'm not telling you that so that it just blows all the categories of the story. You have to question every part of it. Most of what you learn from the pageants is accurate. And you don't have to go home and remove all the wise men from your nativity scenes. It's okay. Or become the person, you know, the nativity police at everybody's Christmas party this year, secretly saying to yourself, you know, the wise men don't actually belong in the manger. And don't know if you knew that. We don't have to be those people, okay? But it does help us to see. The story has become so familiar to us. It loses its ability to surprise us. In many ways, we have domesticated the story. We have tried to tame it and make it cute and cuddly for us. And in the process, we have sterilized it from its profound impact on us. So here's the message of the sermon for us on Christmas Eve morning. Do not be content with your knowledge of the Christmas story. Let it surprise you, confront you, and comfort you this year. Those three will form the outline for our sermon. The goal for us today, as I said, then let the Christmas story surprise you, confront you, and comfort you. First, let it surprise you. 
In verse 23, Paul wrote within our passage that Jesus being crucified was a stumbling block to the Jews, and it was folly to the Gentiles. Stumbling block and folly are not the most flattering descriptions. We don't see those included, you know, in like Yelp reviews with five-star reviews. It's not flattering. The way he, as he looked around at his culture and he saw their assessment, he saw that for both deeply religious Jewish people and also culturally relevant intellectuals like the Greeks, he saw that there were significant barriers for them accepting this story of Jesus. And we could say something similar today draw parallels to different tribes and movements within our culture. The message of Jesus would be weak to some and foolish to others. For example, I was having a conversation with someone about faith in Jesus. This person had grown up around religion, but had mostly rejected faith for themselves. And even though this person was not religious in an institutional way, he had adopted many of the cultural values of the deeply religious and nationalistic movements that he's part of. And as we talked about Jesus' humble birth and his sacrificial death, like the Jews, he would have called that weak. And when I called him to trust in Jesus, to submit himself in humility to God, his response was to say, I'm not bowing my knee to anyone Now, I didn't like his answer, but I appreciated that he was honest and he was clear. For him, Jesus was weak, and he did not want to be called to weakness and humility himself. In our passage, Paul is writing about the cross, and so we should recognize that, because it was the most offensive part of the gospel story for for Greeks and for Jews. It was the epitome of weakness and folly. But the reason we chose the passage today is because that is also true for the birth of Jesus. The nature of the birth was also seen as weak and foolish to many. One commentator said of our passage, to the unbelieving Jew, a crucified Messiah is the epitome of weakness and defeat, a flat-out contradiction and a stumbling block that goes against all expectations of a royal conquering king. And here's something we need to know about Jesus' coming. For the Jews, they were expecting a king who would be born in the line of David, who would overthrow the nations around them, who oppressed them and who had rejected God. That was their expectation of this coming Messiah. But a savior who was born into poverty in a small and lowly town, who would grow up to die on a cross, that was not the conquering king they expected. Jesus did not fit their categories. The nature of Jesus' coming did not fit with someone who was going to come and save and redeem all that was lost and broken. Even today, we like strong, confident, and competent leaders. We want CEOs and presidents who are going to win. And far too often, we are willing to put up with a lot of narcissism in our leaders if they're at least going to get the job done. But that is not how Jesus came. And we need to have the self-awareness to see that we would not have planned it this way. If we stop and think about it, the coming of Jesus and his death on a cross, it should be shocking to us. It should be surprising to us. I already mentioned the wise men who we meet in Matthew chapter 2. And when they arrived in Israel, where did they go first? They went to talk with Herod who was the king of that region when Jesus was born. And have we ever stopped to ask ourselves why they went to Herod first? 
Well, they went to Herod because they went to the place where human wisdom would think they would find a king in the most important city, in the most important home of the most important person. That fit the expectations of a Jewish Messiah, a king who would save them from their enemies. We have become so familiar with this story. We miss the fact that the birth of Jesus, it doesn't fit our modern categories any better than it did for the wise men. We miss the fact that we should be surprised that the king of the universe came to such an obscure town. No parade, no announcement. And here is the invitation for you this year. Slow down and ask God to help you see the coming of Jesus with fresh eyes. Be amazed at what it meant for God to come as a child in human flesh. And like the cross, the coming of Jesus is foolishness and it is weakness to human wisdom. It is a stumbling block to many people around us. And rather than think that we believed it is true because we happen to be smart and rational people, we should acknowledge how truly amazing it is that God came as a baby, lived as a perfect human, and died on our behalf. As I said, you and I would not come up with that plan. Let it surprise us. And when we let it surprise us, then it will do a second thing in our lives. It will also confront us. And so we come to our second point. Let the story of Christmas confront you. If something is foolishness to me, but it is actually wisdom then I must admit that I've gotten something wrong in that paradigm. I am not seeing the world in the way God designed it to work. And if that is true, then I need to let that confront me of my own foolishness, pride, or ignorance. And Paul's trying to make a distinction here in our passage. What the Jews perceive as weakness is actually God's strength. And what the Greeks have determined was foolishness is actually God's wisdom. In a first century context, Greeks coveted and craved honor and esteem, and in their quest to be seen as wise, rational, and distinguished people, the idea of worshiping a man who is executed as a criminal would seem ridiculous. How could the wisdom of God and the message of good news center upon an outcast who was crucified? And it isn't just his death that lacked honor in the Greeks' minds, but also his birth as well. Again, he was born in a poverty, in an unimportant town, among a conquered people. How could someone with such pedestrian origins become the hero of the human story? And in many ways, our context is different than first century Palestine, so it might be hard for us to fully understand the stumbling block and folly that Jesus' birth, life, and death would have been. But in some ways, we're not so different. As Bible scholar Gordon Fee said of this passage, the demand for power and the pursuit of wisdom are the basic idolatries of our fallen world. Together, they represent the self-centered heart of humanity in rebellion against God. Fee is arguing that what Paul is confronting here in first century Jews and Greeks is true of all humanity throughout all of time. Which means that is the tendency of my heart, and it is the tendency of yours as well. And what if we stop to ask ourselves, how do we view weakness within our culture? How do we view weakness in ourselves? If we're honest, we don't like weakness. 
I dare say we hate weakness. We do not like to be out of control. We don't like to be dependent upon others. As a culture, we have a high degree of respect for people who appear strong. And at times, we will lose respect for people who express too much need. And the reason we have an aversion to weakness is because it reminds us of our own weakness. We don't want to be reminded of that. We don't want to be always aware of our weakness and our imperfections, to have to feel that in ourselves. In 2010, researcher and storyteller Brene Brown's TED Talk went viral. It's still one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. And her talk was about the power of vulnerability. What her research has shown is that even though we dislike our own weakness, it is the pathway to real connection with others. This comes through vulnerability, through weakness, a willingness to be open and transparent transparent and to take risks. That vulnerability at times can feel weak because we give up control. We put ourselves at the mercy of another person's response. Now, even though we hate this weakness, her talk went viral. That should tell us something. She confronted something in us that we feel about ourselves. We know how weak and imperfect we are as people, and we fear that our weakness makes us undesirable and unlovable. But based on her research, Brene says that we really only have two options. We can be honest and vulnerable, or we can do what most people do, suppress and numb our vulnerability, which she says has led to the most in-debt, obese, addicted, addicted, and medicated adult cohort in U.S. history. Hiding our vulnerability is an extremely common behavior. It isn't just something Brene Brown found in contemporary research. It is the first thing Adam and Eve did when they felt the shame of their own sin in the garden. They covered themselves up because, as it says, they were naked and ashamed. When our deepest and truest selves are revealed, we have a deep, nagging question that we ask ourselves. Am I worthy? Will I be accepted and loved? When I'm fully known and truly seen, how will people respond to me? And the reason the coming of Jesus confronts us is because God came in the most vulnerable form. He came as a baby dependent upon Mary and Joseph to feed him and to care for him, Jesus was willing to enter into our weakness and our vulnerability. Overcoming our fear of weakness happens when we see that God became weak for us. God accommodated himself to our weakness. He is not surprised by your imperfections. The pathway to strong and full lives is through that vulnerability and weakness that is the pattern of our Savior, and it is an invitation for us today. The coming of Jesus also confronts us of our need for wisdom. In the same way that the Greeks were obsessed with intellect and knowledge, we also have prioritized rationalism. In the early part of the 20th century, significant parts of Christianity came to the conclusion that the miracle of the virgin birth and the phenomenon of the resurrection could not possibly be true because it did not fit with a material and rationalistic worldview. In order to make faith more palatable and relevant to our culture, many mainline traditions started to remove anything from Christianity that didn't make sense to modern minds. And as a result, they created a religion made in the image of humanity and lost spiritual power and depth of faith. Now, 
I'm not saying that faith is not rational. I am convinced that faith in Jesus is the most rational explanation for how to live in this confusing and messy world. But when we make our understanding a requirement for faith, we have turned our wisdom and our knowledge into the ultimate standard. And there's a paradox here of wisdom. If we will only accept Jesus when we can do it based on our wisdom, the result is actually rejecting him. But when we accept Jesus on his terms, then he'll help us to grow, to see the wisdom of his coming and dying for us. When our faith begins to seek understanding, God will give us insight into his wisdom. But when we require understanding on our terms in order to have faith, then we will end up like the Greeks in our passage, where we will call God's wisdom foolishness. What happened at the first Christmas is supernatural. It is not something we would have made up. It is not something we could arrive at based on our own wisdom. This is not the plan we would have put into motion. And we must have the humility to admit that we need God's wisdom. If we let the Christmas story confront us, we will find that underneath our aversion to weakness and our need for wisdom is a need for control and a desire to be our own gods. Let the coming of Jesus confront your desire to be the source of your own strength and the source of your own wisdom. And in humility, let God become the strength and the wisdom that you truly need. And when you do, then we can experience the third point this morning. Let the story of Christmas comfort you. Notice that Paul is not saying here that power and wisdom are inherently negative. In verse 24, he says that for those who are called, whether Jewish, Greek, or Gentile background, Jesus becomes the power of God for us. Jesus becomes our wisdom. Paul is not saying that power and wisdom are bad desires, but that they are looking for them in the wrong place. And here is why the message of Christmas can be a comfort for us today, because the things that we long for, your deepest yearnings and desires, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. The Jews wanted power. They wanted a king who would have the strength that they needed. They wanted God to redeem what was broken. They wanted their Messiah to come in power. And Paul is saying, even though some of them didn't see it, what they wanted was in fact fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the king who had the strength to come as a baby and a servant. Jesus is God who came to redeem the brokenness of the world through the brokenness of his own body. And Jesus is the Messiah who may have died in weakness but rose again in strength so that in our weakness we can know the true strength of God. Paul doesn't list every desire of the human heart here. He mentions two, power and wisdom, because they're so central to the cultures of his day, so inherent to human desire. And even though he only mentions two, the basic formula of what he's saying is true for all of our deepest desires. The thing that you long for, whether it's repaired relationships, peace in your heart, success in your work, what you need to know today is that the surest path to your deepest desire being fulfilled is not by rejecting Jesus, but by coming to see that all that you need most is found in him. Many of us long to be fully known and truly loved. And one of the reasons we have such an aversion to weakness is because in our vulnerability, we risk the possibility of revealing ourselves fully and then being rejected. 
For some of you in the room, you've experienced that pain, the pain of rejection after you've taken the risk of vulnerability in relationship. For others of you, you've experienced the opposite, the healing that comes from being fully known and found worthy of love. And that has been mine and Megan's experience in marriage. Marriage isn't always perfect, right? We've experienced hurt in the process. But throughout our 15 years of marriage, there has been an ever-increasing vulnerability, weakness, and honesty toward one another. And as we experience that, in response, love and grace coming, it grows intimacy, it grows security in relationship. That is why the Bible says that marriage is meant to be a picture of God's love for us in Christ. Because it is a human relationship where there's such a significant opportunity to experience what God has done for us in Christ, to be fully known and loved unconditionally like Jesus. But no human relationship, no matter which one it is, whether it's your marriage or your best friend or your parents, no one will know us like God does. Our knowledge of one another is nothing compared to the depth of knowledge that God has of you. And that can be a scary concept when we start to think about it, because we have thoughts and feelings every day that we would not want anyone to know, but God knows them. Think about that. God knows you fully and completely. There can be no mask with him, no hiding, no running. And here's the comfort I want the Christmas story to bring to you today. God knows the deepest parts of you, and he has not rejected you. He did not run away. He moved toward you. He came as the person of Jesus. He experienced our weakness on our behalf. And through his coming, we can know God and be known by him. Do not be content with your knowledge of the Christmas story. It is a miracle. It is profound. This year, let it become new to you again. Look at it with fresh eyes. For many of us, it is so familiar that it is no longer amazing and awe-inspiring when in reality it should surprise us, confront us, and comfort us. And here's my invitation to you. As we gather here on Christmas Eve morning, River City Church, let God fulfill all your deepest longings in Jesus as you see the Christmas story with fresh eyes this year. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.